the, the quote is, uh, the way you do anything is the way you do everything. Um, and I think that doesn't mean that you just do everything to, you know, you're absolutely dead, but it's, you know, taking, being very honest with yourself, having 100% accountability and ownership with yourself and what you're trying to do. Um, knowing that whatever you do, that reflects on you and, 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 and you as a person. You know, I, I think everybody sees people who like to blame other things and, and other people, but a lot of the time, I, I think you can do things better or you can, you know, you could have done something better. Um, so I like to think that everything is pretty much under my control and I can do things better. Um, obviously, like somebody jumping on your leg and breaking your leg quite outside of your control but most most things you can you can have a, like an element of control on so um that's the first one um the way you do anything is the way you do everything that was ben fletcher i am curtis mansfield and this is a series finale of the hips and dips podcast so here we are the 30th episode and the 32nd piece of audio content released. It is a finale of what, for me at least, has been a great series where I've met some truly awesome people from the world of sports and not only here in the UK, but also on a global scale. Now, I've already mentioned this being the series finale twice, but that is for, for good reason. I'm sure I'm going to mention it several more times over the next hour or so, but that is because I don't want to provide myself with any room to take a backward step, a clause in the contract, if you will. I'm continuously chatting with potential new guests, and so the temptation is always there to just continue the series indefinitely. I feel like I can always make one more episode, do one more interview. But it's been a long series, and I need to take some time to reflect on how I can improve the content I am providing for you guys as listeners, and that includes sponsors, guests, um, and the sort of questions I ask in my interviewing technique. We'll be back before you know it, and we'll be back even stronger. Oh, wait, uh, it's actually the start of the interview. Um, I've actually got a guest on today, um, and what a guest he is. This week, I am joined by Olympic judo athlete Ben Fletcher. Having represented both Ireland and Great Britain, he has amassed a rather impressive CV. A multiple Grand Slam and Grand Prix medalist, including a gold medal in uh, Tunis, becoming the first judoka representing Ireland to win a World Judo Tour event. And he's also been to the Rio Olympics in 2016 and was a junior world championship bronze medalist. Really looking forward to chatting to the big man and finding out about his dual nationality, training, injuries, but first, let me once again remind you to check out that social media, which is at hips underscore and underscore dips with a Z uh, on Instagram. Lots of great content there, not only from Ben, but from all of my guests from the past 30 episodes. Um, there's also details there on sponsors and particularly relevant now, there'll be announcements ahead of the next series as to what to expect. But for now, it's time to welcome Team Ireland's heavyweight. It's Ben Fletcher. Right, Ben, fantastic to have you on, ready for this uh, series finale. Um, how are you doing? 
Yeah, very well, mate. Thank you very much for having me on and um, looking forward to this. Yeah, it's been a, a bit of a disaster, really. Obviously, for the last month or so, I've been trying to get you on. Then we've had uh, issues with scheduling. We've had, I had a on call shift a few weeks ago, so we had to cancel interview just before it started. Wi-Fi problems, sound problems. Um, mm. You're an Olympic athlete with a busy schedule. I've got my own slightly less interesting schedule, so trying to match your luck's been <laughs> hard, but I'm glad we're finally ready to go. Um, one thing I will say, actually, just as a little rant, nothing to do with you, as a little rant in general, is um, I've got both Zoom and Teams. Now, I don't know mm. if you ever get this, and they don't work very well together. They work well individually. I like Zoom, I like Teams, but I came to log into you tonight and teams pops up mid zoom interview and vice versa they don't work together you need to have one or the other and unfortunately i've got like teams for work and i've got zoom for this zoom for university don't like it but um so if anyone's listening from microsoft or zoom sort it out but uh that's not really relevant to this what is relevant to this however <laughs> is obviously you're uh you're an athlete an olympic athlete and of course it's been this pandemic year um, and I always start by really asking sort of how my guest's health is. So we're looking at physical, mental and sort of social well-being, um, which is a very broad question. I want you to answer that. But what I also want you to answer is you're the first guest I've had on since they've announced there's going to be no overseas crowds for the Olympics. So talk about so the impact of that on your mental health, as well as this whole year or 18 months has been. Yeah, I mean, there's quite a lot in there. and. Um touching wood to start with um yeah physically i'm i'm in pretty decent shape um, i'm sure we'll touch on it later i broke my leg towards the start of the year and um coming back from the rehab side of it uh, from that so physically i'm as good as i can be based on that but from a code point of view um i'm yet to have it. i've actually got my first dose of uh, the vaccine tomorrow so um that's coming up and then hopefully We'll be getting the second dose in about three, four weeks time, um, hopefully fast tracking that so I can have both before the games. Um, but yeah, um, mentally, it's, it's been quite a difficult situation because ultimately we were preparing for Olympic Games last year and um, had a two year qualifying cycle coming to the end of that of six tournaments um, and it's completely changed and I think our first tournaments, um, qualifying tournaments came back in in November um, and then had like a couple more before the the um, the end of the year and then quite a lot more than there were beforehand, like from January to June. So the, the qualifying schedule itself changed a lot. Um, and going for a qualifying, uh, um, I mean, it's different for every sport, but in judo, in my sport, it's quite difficult physical task so it's the top 18 in the world um it's not like if you get one result you'll qualify it's if you um you have to be the top 18 in the world that could be the points could be in some way it's quite low they could be quite high you know there'll be um european world medalists missing out this time um yeah and you qualify over two years and getting towards the end of that you're you're quite physically fatigued and mentally fatigued so I was definitely um, in 2020 quite physically and mentally fatigued. So in some ways, COVID was quite nice because it gave me a bit of a break. Um, but yeah, I mean, there hasn't been many other positives from that. It's um, I usually train down in Bath. Um, 
and the university shut down um so i wasn't able to train there so i had to find new ways and places to um to train and get the best out of the situation it was yeah and did you take the sort of approach that i think i've seen a lot of boxers took when they kind of had almost like a like a massive pre-season style like lots of weights lots of fitness less or skill-based actual judo in your training do you mean during during covid yeah during that sort of take that initial sort of wave perhaps yeah definitely um so i um, moved back to where my parents um live near uh, wokingham near reading um and um my old judo club had a quite a pretty good gym in it so um with bath uh, so I, I normally train at the university of bath so i was that was completely closed so i moved back here so i had access to a gym so i was mainly doing like you say like physical work lots of weights lots of um conditioning work um and that, like like you say there wasn't much judo for a large chunk of the first wave in the lockdowns um so yeah did a lot of pre-season tried to make a lot of physical improvements um and then it was just wait and see when tournaments can come and when they happen. And, you know, at, at first there was, there was going to be a lockdown for three weeks and then, you know, and then it like, um, as we all know, it became clear that it was going to be for a quite a lot longer um, and with lasting effects. And here we are over a year later and we're still sort of, you know, we're, in, in this country, we're quite lucky to become, it seems to be coming to the end of it. Um, but the rest of the world are quite still in the grip of it. Yeah, exactly. And that's that's actually quite an interesting point as well when it comes to the, the use of the vaccine. So I think all British athletes actually are getting vaccinated. And I think it's the same for the Americans and to be fair, probably quite a lot of the developed countries. We had an interesting debate on probably about a month ago with a guest who was talking about whether they should vaccinate all athletes. And we were talking about perhaps some of the poor countries. It's not fair, you know, maybe the likes of Kenya and Ugandan runners might not have the same access that like an American athlete would or British athlete would. Um but overall, I mean, does it give you more confidence for you and your family that you can go having this vaccine? Oh, definitely. Um, so my parents are a bit older, so um, I'm the youngest of five kids from, from my dad. My dad's 82, so I'm 29. Um, and being back here, I'm around them quite a bit. So as you can imagine, being in a house with uh, older family members, there was always the the feeling in the back of your mind, like, you know, who could have COVID or like, what, what could you be bringing home? And there's, there's always fear that you could give it to them and how terrible that would be to bring that home. And there was a lot of, yeah, I think fear is the only way to describe it as, you know, you wouldn't want to be the person to give it to a family member. Um, And, you know, potentially nobody knows how they're going to react to it. So yeah, just, um, I think with the whole process with COVID, there's so much uncertainty. And I think that was, that just fuels like panic and um, worry. So um, yeah, I think that, that, that's been the, the thing, the thing for me. So especially like, having older parents and living, like living on the same side, I'm not in the same building as them, but like um, in close contact with them, it was always just worrying about me bringing it home or my girlfriend bringing it home. Yeah, I can definitely appreciate that. I'm not sure if we actually really spoke much about my my um, my last couple of years, but obviously I, I work in a hospital. Um, mm. Well, actually, I worked in intensive care for the initial couple of waves. So I was a lot of people were locking down. I was actually very busy, and uh, I was 
you know, coming face to face those patients on a daily basis. And it was quite interesting because once again, like as we started to open up and I could start to see maybe my nan again and my mm. aunt and some of the elderly family members, my own parents and so on, it was very much, uh, they would say to me like, oh, aren't you scared about like going into the hospital or seeing these patients every day? And I was like, not really. I'm scared about seeing you because it's like you just said, like, I'm fine, you know, I'm safe, we're, we're young enough, we're healthy enough and so on, there shouldn't be any issues, but, you know... You, we hope. We hope, <laughs> yeah, we hope yeah. yeah. But the worst thing would be, yeah, if, if, you're, if your elderly family members got really ill, like, I don't know how you'd even live with yourself knowing that, you know, it'd probably be you. And also, particularly in my case, also in your case as well, when you start going back to training again, like, if one of your family members got ill, everyone's going to point the finger at you, aren't they? They're not going to go, oh, yeah, yeah it might have been you know, mum who popped to the shops the other day, they'll be going, oh, well, definitely Ben, who was going back and forth. <laughs> Did to you know to wrestle day. a bunch of blokes? <laughs> exactly, yeah. And it's, and it's there for me going to the hospital. So if you know you get the blame, and even if they're not going to like, honestly, like stand there and blame you as such, but it's always in the back of your mind if someone does get ill. So it was that, mm -hmm. yeah, that was that added sort of- it's Living with yourself, isn't it? It's like living with yourself, living with your choices, which is, is difficult. But uh, yeah, to answer your question from before, I think that's one thing that's really helped I, I can only speak for myself, but like people, so my older parents having the vaccine and knowing that there's such a reduced risk of them um, having a severe case of it. Um, that's, you know, like, like I say, I'm only in my first days tomorrow, but it's definitely been a more of a worry that, that they're okay. And then hopefully, you know, if I was to get it, it wouldn't be so, so severe being a bit younger. Fantastic. Yeah. And what's your, um, I mean, I don't know what your views are on vaccines in general, um, but, you know, I mean, I, I always, I had the, the approach from the off that, yeah, you know, it's better for the greater good, regardless of whether it may have some negative impacts, probably won't, hopefully overall it's safe for them as other things we take and so on. But obviously I'm not a professional athlete. So me perhaps feeling tired for a week or having some muscle pain for a few days or whatever the side effect might be, a bit run down and so on. Actually, you know, I can live with that. It'd be a bit of a shame, probably won't run as much, probably won't go to the gym as much, but it's fine. You're, uh, mm. well, not quite a professional athlete because it's what you do, but you're an Olympic athlete. Yeah. You know, having a week off, um, you know, a couple of days in bed or a week when you can't train properly or having a sore arm when you do a sport mm. and you get thrown around, you have a massive impact on your training when you're only, what, what are we talking about, eight, 12 weeks out from the Olympics? Eight weeks or something like that. So that, uh, that must be something you really got to think about a lot more probably than the average person would. Yeah, definitely. Well, we're sort of six, seven weeks from it now. So like even less. Um, and it's like, so this today I've actually been like um, organi organizing everything with my second dose and just making sure that I've got Pfizer both times because yeah, yeah I'm less likely to react with Pfizer. And like I say, coming back from a, a leg break, we're working on that a lot and I'm sort of, um, you know, leaving it quite late, you know, I didn't intend for it to be like this, but we, you know, we're leaving it quite late and things are going well, but I can't, you know, every day is, you know, you know, I, I, I can't waste any time, um, you know, and if I, if I was to be in bed for four or five days then that, that would make a real, real difference to my preparation. And I know for most people, they say four or five days, you know, what's that, you know, but you know, I, I think it's it's 50 days today to, till I'd fight. So that's five percent, well, 10% of the days, you know. Um, so when you look at it like that, it would have a, a big, a big effect on my 
on what I can do, you know, when, yeah, when it comes yeah. to the Olympics. Yeah, exactly. And that's it. And, and also, I suppose, if we go on the flip side now, so we go away from the vaccine and we go to perhaps, perhaps you don't have the vaccine and you were to get ill. Now, you know, we hear reports that people have had COVID potentially for, you know, a month, two, three months afterwards can have this, what they call long COVID. So you're having these like delayed symptoms, like reduced lung capacity, fatigue and so on, which again isn't ideal for the average person. But for you, you know, if you suddenly lost half your lung capacity getting into the Olympics, then that's, you know, you're kissing goodbye any chance you've got of having proper success there if you can compete at all. So the risks of having, the even as a young person, the risks of having even minor symptoms of COVID could be devastating. So I suppose it's, in that sense, yeah, it's even more important perhaps you're vaccinated than, than someone of an equivalent age who isn't a top athlete. Yeah, 100%, completely agree. And we're talking about like high performance. We're talking about the like 1% makes a difference in, in, a, in a match for me. You know, it's such small margins. And like you say, if your lung capacity is down by whatever percentage, you know, like you say, you're kissing goodbye to any chances that you have from um, for, for performance, you know, and nobody necessarily wants to go to an Olympic Games to compete. They want to go to win. Um, yeah. well, the vast majority of people do. So it's just one of those things where you, <laughs> yeah, anything that's going to inhibit your performance, like on a day-to-day -day basis, you would do everything you can to get, get away from. And yeah, I, I think it's just one of those things where you all you can do is is hope that you don't get it or make sure you're vaccinated. Um, and then, you know, even if you were to get it, hopefully you get the a very, very mild case. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And I um I had both Pfizer vaccines and uh I had no real issues. I had I had I played rugby the next day, so my shoulder mm. my my arm felt fine, so that's positivity there. One weird thing I did have, which is uh strange, I had very vivid dreams um oh. both times. So again, it was quite nice actually. Just had a very like graphic dream. Um I think I was like a racing driver, one of them, and it's like a like 007 and the other one, something like that. Um very, very, very fun. So hopefully you've got that to look forward to. That's not really negative, yeah. positive. Um, okay, and then I suppose finally then, so as I asked earlier, this idea about no crowds or no overseas crowds, potentially no crowds at all. That's yet to be decided, I think. Um, as someone who's already been to the Olympics and has seen like a full crowd and had that amazing atmosphere in Brazil, um, what does how does that seem to you, the idea of having not having your family and friends there, not having you know, that GB support or any support, and it might potentially be quite a quiet atmosphere for the games. You mean Team Ireland support, of course. <laughs> <Yeah>. Of course, <laughs> sorry, of course, yeah. Of course, yeah. No, we'll, get right. that. we'll get on to that later. <laughs> yeah, no. Um, yeah, it, it's like like any event. Um, the fans make it and make the atmosphere. Um, so I think it's, you know, it, it's a shame, but I, I think in a lot of ways, you know, it, it's, it's amazing that the games could be going ahead. You know, uh, it's, 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 it's just one of those things where I think we've gradually just understood that that's probably not going to be the case. You know, we, I want my fans, uh, fans, <laughs> I want my friends and family there. Don't have any fans. Um, they, um, yeah, you know, I want that more than anything um, for lasting memories for, for all of us. But um 
it, it it's sad, you know. We, everybody will want fans there. They want a packed arena. They want um, the atmosphere, you know. And, and that that atmosphere, as we know, just creates more drama it, or the potential for more drama and more of a performance. Nobody wants to be competing in a cold, um, quiet, bored hall. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like, just <laughs> not not that you know, not like. Not that it will be that, but that's what you envision when you don't think of no fans. Um, so, yeah, it's sad, but then also on the, what, what's the alternative? You know, I, I think that's the only thing they can do. And although it's sad, the times we're living in, unfortunately. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I think, like, you look back over the course of the last year and some of those big sporting events we have had, and they've been behind closed doors. I remember the, um, the what was it, the 2000 and the 2020 European rugby final, for example, with, um, I think it was Exeter versus the Racing 92, I think it was, and yeah, um, yeah. the Champions League final that year as well. And there's been some great games and great sporting moments behind closed doors. And, you know, when you've got the sponsorship there and you've got the big Olympic logos, and although it won't be the same, of course it won't be, but there still must feel some sort of specialness to it. And, of course, I suppose in many ways it probably encourages you more to try and, not that you really need that, but to go for that big memory because no matter who's there, if you succeed, it will still be a great moment. But we'll get onto that more later, actually, um, because I want to just quickly go in and do a little game. Every week we do a little game, which is a little ice-breaking game. It's always a bit strange, actually, because I think the ice is well and truly broken at this point, but we're going to uh, do it anyway. Um, and it's always inspired by either my guest or their sport or something that springs to mind so this week the game is called at home with the fletchers um okay. and i don't know why i really called it that but at one point i was thinking of going with like famous fletchers there's quite a lot of footballers like stephen fletcher uh mm-hmm. darren fletcher darren fletcher a good another good one um that's it actually two fletchers but yeah that didn't <laughs> <two>. work anyway <laughs> um so instead i'm going to go with um taking surnames and surnames where the name is derived from the person's profession. So, for example, do you know what a Fletcher is or what a Fletcher yes. would be? Yeah, an arrow maker. Or ma- an arrow maker. Of fletchings and an arrow. Exactly. So you got a point already. The first one is uh, arrow maker Fletcher. I'm going to go through. I'm going to give you nine different surnames. I want you to tell me the profession of the person who had that surname. Sound good? Yeah. As long as it's like Thatcher, Potter... You know, they are really obvious ones. Yeah, they, they are really easy. There's been there's about there's potentially three which involve some sort of knowledge. The rest of them okay, are just okay, really simple. Okay, okay number number two, right, no, number two, number one was Fletcher. Number two, Smith. Um, blacksmith. Yeah, essentially, apparently, Smith means one who works with metal. So blacksmith. Um, Blacksmith. Oh, well, like um, iron, wasn't arm, it? I think. Armor, had... armor. Yeah, yeah, somebody. What other ones? Iron Smith, I guess you could yeah, have. Like, iron just... Smith. Uh, tin, oh, goldsmith. Tinsmith. No, goldsmith. Like... Yeah, any metal, I think, yeah. is a smith. Okay. Uh, so you get a point for that. Next one, Taylor. Uh, like Taylor's clothes for you. Like <laughs> Taylor. Uh, it's like, really hard Taylor, to explain. Yeah. It's really hard to explain what a tailor is without saying the word tailor in it. Um, yeah. But yeah, makes clothes good. What about a fuller or a Ooh. walker? Kind of got the same derivation. 
I don't actually know. I just know there's a Fuller's beer brand, and a, but yeah. I don't know. No, you're on the wrong. You're on the wrong path uh, there. Apparently, a Fuller is someone who processes raw wool. Um, oh right. To make it in before it's made into obviously clothing, they actually they actually pick the raw wool and mess around with it and stuff. Um, that's that one's wrong. Uh, next up, what about right? Spelled W R I G H T, like the right stuff. I have no idea. Ah, well, there's no tricky one there. They're someone who works with wood, i.e., a carpenter. That would be a right. Uh-huh. No idea so, that. Ian Wright must have come from a family of uh, carpenters. Um, number six. <laughs> what about wood? As in Chris Wood. Like, yeah, like, like, but after the last couple, I'm like, oh, definitely can't be a carpenter or um, let's go with a tree surgeon. I know it's not right, but that's pretty close, actually. Apparently, it's someone who works in a forest or near a forest. Oh, is it like a coppice or like, um, yeah, 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 I think it's along those lines. Like I'll give you that one, actually. Sort of, sort of a tree ish person, yeah. Um, okay, uh, what about a clerk? Oh, a uh, shoemaker. Uh, no, no, I thought it'd be a shoemaker. Apparently, according to the dubious website I used, um, it's derived from a cleric or a priest, oh, nice. um, which is quite strange. You feel like being a priest would kind of end the family tree in many ways. Um, yeah, you're right. Um, but anyway, yeah, apparently it's a, a cleric. Uh, number eight, what about Miller? M I double. Well, they, I'm assuming they mill things. Milling. I'm trying to think <laughs> what do you mill? Like, like grain, I guess. Mill grain. Yeah. Flour. Grain. Yeah. And, you have that. You have yeah. that. And then finally, I've got Turner. Cross. Um, Turner. Think about like saying you turn back in like yeah. Victorian times in the, in the factories. Turning like they turn wheat or something like in a field or I don't know. No, not bad, not bad. No, apparently it's someone who works with a lathe. So you're turning the old lathe, according to this. Oh, as in like, um, uh, what's the a lathe again? I don't know. <laughs> I, don't know. <laughs> I do know. I'm trying to fetch it. It's like, it's like cross hatching, isn't it? Of like material. Is it making? Is it oh, like, yeah. So like, to like, yeah. Like, it's when yeah. you're bringing um, fabric together, basically. Yeah, yeah. Like, like yeah. But probably you you'd use a fuller to get your raw wool. Then you put that in a lathe, right? And then you'd make blankets out of it using the lathe. And the Turner would take it from. Yeah. It'd work together. Yeah, I don't know. And then you get a tailor involved at the end. Um, so there you go. Right. That was weird. If anything, that actually sort of <laughs> reformed the ice. I felt we broken it. Yeah, I made no, it more awkward. What a terrible game. Anyway, thanks for playing at home with the Fletchers. No, uh, no I enjoyed that, mate. It's good. Oh, very good. Very good. It wasn't my best, but uh, it's been a long series. Um, <laughs> so funny. Right. Um, okay. So we've uh, touched upon, well, you brought up yourself, actually. I inadvertently brought up mentioning GB. And then you corrected mm. me and said Team Ireland. So yeah. I was correct, however, in saying that you represented GB at the last Olympics in 2018. Yes. So I'm interested to know sort of what was the idea behind the switch and 
on a more positive note, kind of how have you found Team Ireland going into this Olympics? Yeah, so um, I um, have lived in the UK all my life with uh, my mum's Irish and obviously half of my family's Irish um, from Brough in County Limerick. Um, my, my dad's English um, and I've lived here most of my life. I've visited Ireland quite a lot from my childhood, um, but competed for uh, Great Britain all the way up until 2017, so the year after the, um, Olympic, uh, the Olympic Games in Rio. I... I, like I said, I was training down in Bath until before COVID, but I'd been training in Bath since 2010. Um, and the system in British Judo was that you could still get selected for events if you were outside. Like um, they had uh, for a long time, they had like three or four different bases where you could be selected from. They then, um, I think it was in 2013 or 14, they bought in like this one main centre based in Walsall. And the, the plan was to put all the junior athletes in there and gradually build up like a like a major centre. They'd tried this a few times before and it hadn't gone particularly well. Um, and then there was like other sort of key areas, here, one in Edinburgh, one in Bath, uh, one in Camberley. Um, there's like some people in Cardiff, you know, there's, a, there's been like some good bases um, around for like for years. Um, and Walsall, after 2016, they said that if you wanted to be, um, if you wanted to be funded at all, you had to be based in Walsall. It was still like quite a, a young centre and like not a lot of heavyweights. And I'm under 100 kilos. I have, you know, I need like heavyweight training partners. Um, and Bath at that time had the highest concentration of heavyweights in the country. So for me, it made no sense to move. So. After 2016, you know, I've just been to the Olympic Games, only one of three guys who've qualified um, in the country. And I basically said, like, it doesn't make sense for me to move. And a lot of other people in the country, the older athletes felt the same. But um, British, you know, they maintained their policy and said, look, either you can come and move and be funded or you have to self-fund everything. So I wanted to stay in Bath. Um, so I tried to find some sponsors and um and other ways to find money uh, was working quite a bit, a few different, uh, few different ways of earning money. Um, but after a year of doing that, I realised that I wasn't actually earning enough to fully fund the program because, as you can imagine, travelling the world um, is quite uh, is quite expensive. Oh yeah, course, um, yeah. But then also you're you're not training enough really, so it's like the balance of you're not earning enough, but you're also not training enough. So your your loyalties are actually divided when really. I need to be putting all my time and effort into judo. Um, and after the 2017 World Championships, I just sort of thought, like, this isn't working, but I need to change something. Um, I still didn't want to relocate to Warsaw. And I just sort of said to like the performance director at the time, I was like, look, is there any other, anything else we can do? Like, I'll come up a couple of days a week or something like that. Um, and they said, no, that's what it is. Um, and at that point, I, I asked to leave. Um, I had a good relationship with the Irish coach, Kieran Ward. Um, and I was, I was very lucky that both British judo and Irish judo, they had a really good amicable relationship anyway, and British judo were happy for me to leave because they could have banned me um, because I'd been to the Olympic Games. They could have banned me uh, for three years. So I was quite lucky that um, they were you know, amicable, and although they didn't want me to go, they were happy for me to leave. Yeah, um, and obviously, I mean, it must have been quite a hard... GB to lose such an asset 
I mean, you know, going into this latest Olympics, you know, you've been up to sixth in the world in terms of the world ranking. So they're not exactly, they're not like losing some little junior, maybe could have potential sort of athlete. You're on their top performer. Mm. So um, I'm surprised, well, I was, I'm surprised, but equally it was very lucky for you. They're so happy for you to go. Yeah, it's a strange one because at that time um, after the world, I was either the top ranked or the second top ranked British male um, in the country. And, you know, you'd think that they'd, they'd want to keep you on. Um, but, you know, they, they were very, um, you know, dedicated to their plan of making Walsall work and, you know, fair play to them. That's what they wanted to do. But, you know, it, it, I don't necessarily think that they thought they wouldn't work for everybody you know for me I don't think there's one size fits all for everybody you know some people want to go to university and train some people don't want to do that you know and not everybody wants to go to the same place um, I don't think they necessarily thought about that and I you know I wasn't trying to be disruptive but you know it, it didn't work for me um, and I think because I was you know quite amicable with them that's why they were you know albeit not particularly happy to see me leave, but we're happy to let me go. If that makes sense. Well, that's good. Yeah, and you're 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 right. I mean, you're, not the word luck because that seems a bit like you know they owed you something almost. But I think you're. It's good that you managed to leave on good terms for sure. Um, yeah. I, it, I, it, I, it, sorry, no crack. Sorry. <laughs> it's a, it's a standoff. <laughs> no, no, we, we, right, no, I'll, I'll say. I was going to say. I was going to say. Um, I. Uh, I studied at Bath actually uh, for, mm. for four years and I've seen the facilities there for the judo. I mean, I've been in there twice actually into the judo hall. Dojo. Dojo, yes. that's the word, dojo. <laughs> and um, uh, I went in there once to do a lifeguarding course, which was strange. So they had all like the uh, mannequins on the floor, a bit random, I wasn't a judo uh, place. Um, and then I also went in there for like a yoga class, which again was a bit random, but great mm. setup, lovely uh, mats, very soft, I must say. And then yeah. um, you've got all the like ex or current GB international geese. See, I knew that word. Mm. I surprised you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They had geese all around. Is it is geese right? Or have I mucked up? Yeah, yeah, geese right. That's yeah, right. Yeah. Fantastic. Yeah, they had them all around the wall um, with all like, you know, uh, london 2012 on them and all this sort of stuff and i think you had various like black belts hanging up and all the sort of the gear and all the memorabilia which is fantastic so from the outside that was like a perfect place to train and obviously you had the amazing gym facilities baths a beautiful area um a really great environment because i think in some ways i think it's nicer to have that multi-sport environment i don't know how you feel but like i mean you can learn from different sports it's quite nice to go into the gym and, you know, not obviously on a much lower level, but, you know, I was more coming from like a hockey rugby background, but it was great to be in the gym and see like weightlifters training and sprinters training in the gym and swimmers training. You know, we had, at the same time you were there, you had people like, um, oh God, what's some of their names now, but some really top team GB swimmers, uh, Michael mm -hmm. Jameson, for example, he was training down there. Um, so it must be quite cool to train in the gym where you can learn from different people, you can see different athletes, have that, multidisciplinary approach so yeah i think it's the perfect place to train i think you may probably make that right decision so how now you're in ireland no, well so you're in ireland now you're with ireland um have you seen any other interesting differences between perhaps gb's approach and the irish approach 
Yeah, just to jump in on that point from before. Um, yeah, I, I love Bath, and that's ultimately why I wanted to stay there. You know, and I I really really enjoyed the the environment, and for me, it was moving from a settled environment where I knew I was getting good results to like an untested, untried program. So for me, that was didn't make any sense. Um, but yeah, the, the main the main differences between British Judo and Irish Judo, Irish Judo is a lot smaller, but that's not, for me, that's not a negative. Um, we work in a really close group and a really close um, knit team. And I think that in a lot of ways is really beneficial. And I have a lot of influence on my program, which I think for most athletes, that's exactly what you want. You want, you want to have influence and have, feel like you've got an, an ownership of your destiny. If it's like, if things are being dictated to people, I don't necessarily think you get a lot of buy-in from that. I think yeah. it's really important to have ownership and accountability for yourself. Um, and that's that's a key thing for me. So if you have somebody else dictating what you can do all the time, it, it just rubs you up the wrong way. So with Team Ireland having a smaller, smaller program where it's very on a one-to-one -one basis. So I will speak to my personal coach and the um, the Irish national coach and we have a dialogue together. And I think that's a really positive way to be. Everybody feels included. Everybody has their, their opinions heard. And I think that's a really, really good environment to be in. Um, otherwise, I think it, it, it can be, yeah, I, I don't think anything good comes from a feeling of being dictated to on it, you know? No, of course not, yeah. And I mean, from the outside, a sport like judo, where you know it's a solo sport, um, and obviously you said you've got great facilities at Bath, you've got great training partners at Bath, and your own coach, and so on. Would it be that disruptive if hypothetically you trained entirely independent of Ireland, you had no contact with Ireland, and then literally on the day of the Olympics, someone handed you a, a tricolor? and pointed you in the right direction of the map, would, would you be able to train to the same level or do you actually need that input from the governing federation? Yeah, I, I, I think you do. Um, like one, one for, like for example, like it's not, it is an individual sport, but it's a real team motivated thing. Like one from judo, like you need training partners and you need um, your coach to give the direction and to guide you along what you're trying to do. But also like, you need physio you need nutrition you need the SC and all and a lot of my support work comes from ireland um and it's based from the um the sport island institute so a lot of my support network is through ireland although i don't live there but a lot of it is done virtually and um so i, I was actually due to speak to my nutritionist today but i'll probably catch it tomorrow um and it's, it is a real team effort. You know, I'm the person who walks on the mat, but I'm nothing without the team, you know, and, and yeah. I, I genuinely mean that. Like, it's, if you don't have the support network, you're very, very much on your own and there's only so much you can do on your own. You know, we're very lucky now that you've got the internet and you can research things yourself, but, you know, you can only be a master at one thing, you know, like, <laughs> or, or, you know, I... I I need to concentrate on judo, you know, and ultimately I don't necessarily know how to periodize. I don't know why I should be doing this thing at that time. I'm, I've got to concentrate on myself and what I'm trying to do. So without that team, you know, I'm, yeah, 
useless. <laughs> yeah, that, that that's great to hear, and it's it's great to hear you're getting that support from Ireland, um, especially being a slightly smaller federation. Because in many ways, you may think, you know, it's a bit like I, mean, I don't want to be stereotypical. I can say this because my family's Irish, and I'm <laughs> also dual nationality. And if I was if I was gifted as you were, then I would be able to do the same as you have and compete for both countries and so on. But um, in some sports, it does feel like going over to Ireland would be like like an old shed which someone's written like you <laughs> like, know uh, on the front or whatever do you know what I mean but for example <laughs> that was, I've been I've been to Ireland lots obviously and certain sports which obviously are very far behind GB there's certain sports that are very far ahead of GB like you look at mm. the rugby program in Ireland and the way they got their academy system set up so like seems quite far mm. ahead actually of what we've got over here in England for example um, but yeah it's really good to hear that right so now you are an Irish athlete heading into Tokyo 2021, potentially no fans, potentially well, definitely no home fans, vaccine, no vaccine, everything taken into account. What are your realistic expectations for what you can achieve this year? Yeah, I mean, it's, it is a little bit difficult sitting here um, with a recovering broken leg. Everything lo looks like I should be on, on track to, um, it's the last qualifying event this week. So um, everything should be okay. It shouldn't change too much, um, but we're not technically out of the woods yet. So I'm fingers crossed that I should be qualified and everything like that at the moment, because I haven't had much influence on that since I broke my leg in February. Um, but yeah, I mean, ultimately the first thing is to qualify. Second thing is to be past fit. Um, and then outside of that, mate, I, you know, I'm, I know I'm just doing everything I can to prepare the best I possibly can. I've had some, you know, very good results um, the last few years. And, you know, I'm an older athlete now, I'm 29. So I, I, I have a bit more experience than others. And I hope I can, I can use that. Um, I've been to an Olympic Games before and there'll be quite a number of people who maybe are, uh, have achieved more in the last year or so than me but they haven't been to an Olympic Games so yeah. I hope that counts for something yeah yeah and um while we're on that point I mean what is old in judo I mean how do you reckon you've got Paris in you beyond that I mean what's the what's the normal life expectancy for for a heavyweight it, judo athlete it really depends it really depends on the athlete um normally heavier weights can continue for a bit longer okay but and lightweights would normally peak a little bit earlier, so their careers are normally a little bit shorter, but everybody's different and it depends on your style and how you fight. But also um, the International Judo Federation has added like there's so many tournaments now that like you and you have to like compete a lot to keep your world ranking. So that means you're competing and traveling all the time. And for me, I think that means that people can't maintain that level for as long because normally like in years gone by you fought four times a year you know you could have a family you could you know step away for a little bit then come back in but if you're competing 10 15 times a year there's no time for that when you're preparing for those events you you have to be away on training camps for the vast majority of people so i think that makes um makes people's judo careers a little bit shorter um and for me i i, I really don't know um it's been a little bit of a 
with COVID followed by breaking my leg, it's been a bit of a, a crazy few months. So I'm kind of just getting myself, hopefully get myself to the games. And then after that, like just have a few months just to make, just take myself away and find out what I want to do. Because it, look, the thing is with COVID, it's still, still there. So what does that mean? How does that affect? We're talking about vaccines for some of the poorer nations. Like what happens like going forward, like how does that affect competitions? How does that affect the, the Paris cycle? Um, because for judo, um, this time next year, we'll be in qualification again for the, for the Paris games. Yeah. So it, it's, there's, there's a lot of things up in the air and um, physically I'll be able to continue. Um, it's just whether or not I want to, mate. And like for me, it's always been one thing I say with Team Ireland, they've, they've never put any pressure on me to, um, to that I have to stay on or anything. It's always in my hands, and that's fantastic for an athlete. It's, yeah, it's for me, if I'm not getting better and I'm not progressing. I have no ambition to or want to want to do judo. It's it's ultimately too hard, like on you, like physically comp- competing and training and doing that all the time. I no want to do that and not be improving. You know. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And there's no there's no pressure to make decision now anyway. Like, you know, get the Olympics out of the way. You may have a great Olympics. Hopefully, you have a fantastic Olympics, and you'll come back and then you make a decision based on how you feel then or. Might take some. I said take some time off. You know, there's no no need to rush into a decision right now. Of course, there's not. And the things are going to change a lot in the next couple of months, couple of days, probably a couple of exactly. hours. There. So why are we why are we planning more than you know? I can't even plan a holiday more than a few weeks in advance. Never mind the Olympics. So let's not uh, let's not get carried away. Okay, so yeah, um, it's, it's it's one of those where it's. I think as humans, we want to know what our next steps are and have things mapped out. And yeah. I think it's it's nice to know that, but it's it's not always a reality, and you can't always do that, and it's not always practical to do that. So we we just we just see where it goes, and yeah, hopefully have a like you say a fantastic Olympic Games, and then we can we can go from there. Yeah, exactly, exactly, agreed. Okay, so we're going to go on to a few bits to do with um, sort of your injuries, your training um sort of that judo preparation in general but before we do i think it's important for my listeners who aren't as educated as i am to understand sort of how judo works um yep. in a dojo as i just learned the name there we go um <laughs> also gi i'm gonna drop some more words in there now i do know a few bits because I, I i'm playing the idiot here but i do watch a bit of judo like everyone else does once every four years um and I understand, you know, there's a lot of grappling involved. The big word, ipon, which means you mm-hmm. uh, basically you've won. That's the big score. Uh, but just break down a little bit more into like um, technicalities or sort of how you score points, the objectives to a match, sort of how long it lasts, the pressures, just a little bit about the general rules of judo. Yeah. So um, with judo, there's, there's four ways to win. The first way is, um, like you said, a lot of grappling. Um, you're trying to throw your partner on, on their back, flat on their back. Um, if you do that, Ipon is basically the same as a knockout in boxing. The fight is over. It could be first second. It could be 10 minutes into golden score. But if you throw somebody flat on their back, then that's the, um, the fight over. On the ground, there's three ways to win. 
um, you can pin your opponent for 20 seconds and then that would be it on as well. Um, and if you're over 18, so on the Olympic level, you can arm lock and strangle your opponent as well. So if you do that and your partner submits, then that's the fight over. There is um, an alternative, which is if you throw somebody on their shoulder or like they roll a bit, so it's not flat on their back, you get what's called a wazari. So it's like a lower score and two of those equal up on. So if you say, you, for example, you threw somebody and they landed on their shoulders and then you pin them for another uh there's another 10 seconds you then score you then score up on um and say so if you threw somebody twice for two wazaris that would also equal up on okay great um and then what's the plane surface obviously it's uh it's soft mats um and then you yeah. have like a little ring is that right like a circular circular area yeah so it's normally like an eight by eight square meter mat um you you can't in standing you, it, it's a little bit difficult to understand in some ways but you used to be able to like grab um grab people's legs so like um, fireman's carries and like double like almost like rugby tackles um you can't do those anymore um in standing but on the ground you can grab the legs and do whatever you need to do um but so everything is focused on grabbing the the jacket so you have a looks a little bit like pajamas if people have never seen them before um so you have like a almost like a um a dressing gown on like a shorter dressing gown with a belt and then um and then trousers and you're always just trying to grab the, the jacket and um use that to try and throw your opponent okay um so how would you describe yourself in the what's your normal tactic are you trying to go for those big throws is that what everyone tries to do or is do you get it's a bit like um when you watch something like you know like um say mma i know it's very different but mm. the idea of like some people are more you know, upright kind of fighters. Some mm. people like to get into those holes. Some are just going for the long holes. Some are going for the strangles, etc. Do people have yeah. slightly different tactics or are you all trying to go for those big throws, essentially? I think most people, if they could, would just win it straight away with a big throw. You know, it looks spectacular. You know, it's quick. You save en energy. Um, but most of the time, at the top level, everybody's very good. So then it becomes more tactical. You're trying to set traps for people. Um, most people have like a dominant side, like a right-handed or left-handed side. So that, that means how they grip and how they stand is different. So that means you'll know they're more prone to do certain things. So for me, say if I'm right-handed and somebody's left-handed, they might stand a certain way. So I, I know how I could maybe manipulate them to try and throw them and use their body to set traps to, to try and catch them and throw them yeah and you know when you watch like um take another sport let's say like like tennis um mm. and you're watching wimbledon like in the first couple of rounds it's like a straight uh, straight um straight set wins and like all the big boys walk straight through like your federers and Djokovic and so on like when you turn up to like tournaments perhaps on the olympics but like other tournaments in those early rounds is it just like you walk in the ring throw someone on their back and walk out again like just so no away? no not no? not always like um, you do get people winning quite quickly, um, but usually, so the vast majority of the tournaments now, there's like a International Judo Federation World Tour, um, and majority of the people on there are a good level. You get a few people who, you know, they might be their first time there or whatever, but most people are pretty good. So you might have slightly easier fights to start with, and then you have like all of the big dogs later on, um, but usually... Usually it's pretty 
competitive all the way through. And with judo, it's all on the same day. So you could have five, six contests all on the same day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's interesting as well. And we'll get on to that as well when we talk about training, how you prepare for those those sort of fights. So one other little interesting point I wrote in my notes here actually is when you look at a sport like judo, it looks like it hasn't really evolved much in, in mm. sort of historically. Like, you know, you say you're still wearing the gi. I imagine it was very similar back in the 80s. It doesn't like it's evolved much. And say if you compare that to like, I don't know, rugby, you look at like rugby tops going back 20 years ago compared to like how tight they are now, for example. And then you still got, you know, the referee with the little flags um, and the cards. It all seems very like, hasn't evolved much. And I don't mean that in a bad way. I mean, it's just very, it's like quite an old school style of sport. It's very similar, I guess, to boxing hasn't evolved too much in the ring and um, neither has like, you know, Greco wrestling, these sort of things. Um, but outside of perhaps the, what's the word again for the little map? Um, for the dojo? No, no, the little square eight by eight thing. Oh, the tatami. That thing, yeah. Um, outside of that, uh, has the sport evolved a lot in recent years? Have you seen over the course of your career in terms of like how you train, what you eat, you know, sports mm. analysis, all these things that come into professional sport nowadays? Um, have you seen a massive change in that regard? Yeah, um, I, I think definitely judo, I, I think it's one of those things where judo isn't as big of a sport, say if, if you use the example of rugby, where people follow it as much, that like, the kits, for example, they are different to say in the eighties, where people would have like these big, massive kits, and then that now they're sort of like quite streamlined and fitted, and and all the rest of it. Um, just so because if you imagine if somebody's got hold of you with both hands, it's quite difficult to get away. So somebody, you know, you you want you know basically your hands and your opponent, and they don't have anything on you, um, and. If you're in in the sport, judo has uh, has changed quite a lot. So after 2012, they got rid of leg grabbing. You know, like I said, you used to be able to do like the old farmers carrying the the grabbing the legs and that sort of thing, and that was all in line with um, judo and judo and wrestling. They thought it looked so similar, so judo took that away, so it distanced itself from wrestling a little bit. So it was like so for the casual fan who watch it like you say once every four years they look at it and they go like I, I can't tell the difference between these whereas so judo took away the leg grabs and then um have some way of differentiating them between them and wrestling for the casual fan so i i do definitely think judo is it is evolving all the time but it's, it's and, and also technically, there's a lot of sports similar to judo with Sambo and BJJ that have a lot of influence in, in it. Um, but it's one of those things with, with judo being a smaller sport, I do think it maybe goes under the radar of the casual fan because, because they're not watching it all the time, you know? Yeah. Yeah, no, you're probably, you're probably right. Um, and I, I didn't mean anything negative by saying it was sort of quite old school. I mean, that's really No, 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 not at because all. Because you look at so many sports now and perhaps the pure essence of that sport has been lost or been diluted by, um, you know, VAR, for example, in football or mm. whatever it is, or all the different camera angles or the facts like, you know, in cricket, the bales light up when they come off, all these sort of things, you know, sports change yeah. a lot. It's evolved, technology's come in and money and all these sort of influences. So I quite like the fact when you would do watch judo, and like I said, I'll be honest with you, it is once every four years, but when I do watch it, it is very like, um, 
it seems very pure. It's two blokes mm. or, or two women or whatever, um, fighting to try and get the other person on their back or to hold them in a grip. And, and that's kind of it. You know, there isn't uh, perhaps some of the distractions or things that other sports sort of possess. Mm. It's quite nice that it's just very pure. Um, another thing I suppose just sprung to mind as well, obviously, this is going to be the first year we've had karate in the Olympics. So now you've got karate, you've got judo, you've got kickboxing, um, you've got boxing, you've got wrestling. So quite a lot of these sort of combat sports. Um, is that is that something you thought mm. about? Is it quite good to see that these other combat sports, which obviously differ in many ways, but do possess that common thread that your sport has growing on the world stage? Yeah, I, I think it's, I think MMA probably has helped that. I think uh, combat sports and fighting sports do get a bad rap, but it's usually from people who don't understand them. I would always say that people who are involved in fighting sports and combat sports are the people you are least likely to ever see in an actual fight. Yeah. They're people who are actually, most of the time, they're dedicated to their, their, their sport. They, you know, that's what they're going to put their efforts into and they're, you know, they know what they can do. So to the average person, you know, like in reality, like they're a trained fighter. They, you know, they, they know what they're doing. It's not two drunk guys at the pub swinging at each other. You know, you know how to hurt somebody. So I think that's, that's something that um, most people don't take into consideration. So I think more and more fighting sports being in the Olympic Games can be a positive just as long as it doesn't push judo out <laughs> yeah, yeah of course yeah, you know, yeah. like that that was, that was one of the things with with london i think a lot of people were were worried about that and wrestling did get kicked out but then there was such uproar that it was brought back in um and yeah i think it's, it's one of those things that with a lot of the the fighting sports it does you know not everybody's the biggest fan of it so if one or two of them for the, the casual fan left the Olympic Games, they most people wouldn't care too much. But for the people in it, it's, you know, their lives and their livelihood. Yeah. Um, and I'm going to embarrass myself, actually. I can't remember names, but there, there was, um, back in 2012, there was a, God, there was a woman. Did, did she take home bronze for GB? Is that right? Uh, Gemma Gibbons. That's the There's, one, there's yeah. two, two, two women who, who medal, Gemma Gibbons and Karina Bryan. Gemma Gibbons, that's why I was both medal. Yeah. But Gemma's probably one, the one you're thinking of because there was the, the story she thanked, um, looked at the heavens and like yeah. said, um, I love you, mum. And um, and yeah, it was a, a really, really nice moment. Yeah, now that was really good actually because obviously, I mean, obviously, it was great for her, it was great for the sport, but it was, it was, it was something that I saw, you know, it made the news, it made the, the, the the compilations and all that sort of stuff um unfortunately though i suppose from your point of views it was overshadowed slightly by obviously the success of taekwondo so um what jay jones won gold i think gold or yeah, yeah yeah gold, yeah and then um the other lad uh muhammad sorry isn't it muhammad he won the yeah yeah, yeah. It's, really, it's, it's just really embarrassing that i'm someone who knows a lot about sport and these guys have won Olympic gold medals, and I pride myself compared to the average. Is it Latola Mohammed? I think that's right. Yeah, yeah. But um, and again, he has success. I think in Rio as well. Um, mm. And then there's then there's Bianca Williams. Is that right, Bianca? Something. I think she's done something as well in taekwondo as well. So these these names actually have kind of taken taekwondo to a new level, and perhaps mm. 
distracted some of that attention away from judo but maybe this is the uh this is the olympics to bring it all back it only takes one amazing performance or um this amazing moment or great fight and suddenly people can be really drawn in it's amazing how quickly in britain we can jump on a jump on a sport when it's when it's going well for us yeah i i think there's no like um it's not sad for judo i think it's just great for taekwondo you know and the fair play to them for doing so well you know and um yeah I, i'm sure Gemma and karina they inspired a lot of people from from doing that um but you know fair play to taekwondo for for what they did you know and uh isn't you know I, I, there's 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 plenty out there for everybody you know and uh, uh, you know i think for most kids if you're in a fighting sport you know you it's going to be beneficial for you. Obviously, I'm I'm uh, biased, and I think judo is the best one. But you know, <laughs> you know, I, if somebody said, you know, do you think it's a good idea for my kids to go to taekwondo? I'd probably say, yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah, right. I think all sports fantastic, and when you're right about discipline as well. I mean, I did karate as a kid. Um, unfortunately, I wasn't really naturally gifted at it, but um, I did reasonably mm. well. I got to like, I remember now, one of the you know, I got a purple belt, something that was like two below black. So I was like, it's okay, but nothing really amazing. And unfortunately, I just did so many other sports. So I was doing hockey and rugby and swimming. And fortunately, you know, time ran out and I had to choose and it fell by the wayside. But I did really enjoy the discipline side of it. And I did enjoy um, that sort of technicality of it and learning the skills. And and perhaps, you know, in another lifetime, it could have been something I pursued a bit more. But I think you are, you are mm. right on that side. Okay, so now let's look at you. So that's judo. Well, as well as being a, a judo person, you're also an athlete. And I think nowadays, I think, I think the colours between different sports have certainly run and merged. So the way different sports people train actually has a lot of similarities. Maybe going back, mm. um, let's say, 50, 60 years, you know, maybe rugby players trained in a particular way and runners trained in a particular way and swimmers trained in a particular way and swimmers mostly were in the water and football players are mostly on the football pitch but as you come forward now to the current time and so much of what you what you do in training is gym based is research based is outside of uh, the dojo so talk a little about how you train on an average week-to-week basis yeah so you're right um, a lot of my time is spent in the gym um, a lot of the time is doing conditioning and uh, gym work and that's so important because if you just focus on the judo side of it, you'll become very, well, if I only did conditioning for judo, so if I only used judo for conditioning, you never really achieve the level of conditioning that you need, need because, because judo's skill-based, you, you can take, take a little bit off. You can, you can relax a little bit. You know, you don't, you don't have to be going um, like full throttle the whole time. Whereas that's why you need to do the conditioning outside. So it's, it's, a, it's, it's important to do that. And also with judo, it's really important because if you're doing judo all the time, you just get banged up. You know, if you're sparring every day, you just get banged up and chewed up all the time. It'd be the same as if rugby players were only playing rugby for their fitness. Yeah. You know, they'd just be banged up and smashed. And, um, and then you, it's really important to have the, the, the strength elements outside because... If I just concentrate on judo, and like I say, uh, like I said earlier, I'm right-handed. I stand a certain way. Your body's going to be be quite unbalanced doing that. So I need to make sure that I'm, you know, 
as balanced as I possibly can be. And that's where the the S&C side of it comes in a lot. You know, judo is definitely a massive part of my training and that will always be the case, but it's so important to be, to have a good and, and strong S&C program as well with you. Yeah. And I mean, I mean, the first thing that springs to mind probably for like a heavyweight combat sports person would be power. Um, so maybe mm. quite explosive power. Um, but then I suppose probably the thing that's probably underestimated by a lot of people would be that endurance side of it. Because how, how long's a, a round? Is it three minutes? Two minutes? No, so it's it's a four minute, um, four minute. match, and then if there's no there's no no score at the end of that, then it will go to golden score, which is the first score or uh, penalty point afterwards ends the fight. So yeah. those rounds are quite short and intense, but you need to. Um, you need to be able to go into deep water, but then also you need the endurance space because you've got four or five. So you could have four, you could have five or six uh, matches in a day. So you need to be able to recover in between. So yeah. If, yeah. If, if you haven't got the endurance base to, to bring your lactate back out and, you know, then, you know, you're not going to be able to recover in between matches. So you, if you, if you get past the first round and your body's shot and, you know, you're not going to get very far and, many competitions yeah exactly yeah, yeah. And, and, and never mind the the recovery side of it just thinking purely about that four minutes four minutes is a long time for your mm. sort of sport um I mean, i'm trying to think something to compare it to but like if you if you try to you basically you're kind of you spend a lot of your time in that sort of crouch um sort of almost explosive position fight mm. you're either getting out of grapple trying to get someone else into a grapple with a lot of high intensity movements and if you show weakness, I imagine for like, you know, even for a second, whether that be like, you know, trying to just easing off, relaxing for any time, then in the Olympic Games, you're going to get flattened, I imagine, if you show any any yeah. sense of weakness. So four minutes is a long time. So if people listening at home, try and, you know, hold a squat for four minutes. Try and hold a squat for one minute. Try and hold a squat for 30 yeah. seconds in some cases. It's a... It's quite a hard thing to do. It's, well, I mean, it's an impossible thing for most people to do. So just the endurance to compete for four minutes at high intensity is really hard. Mm. Four minutes of running flat out. Well, in theory, it should be impossible. You should be able to run flat out for four minutes because, like, you know, yeah. you're well into your lactic thresholds and so on. So, um, but, yeah, so, so that, that's that side of things. Yeah, and as you said about the recovery side. So how do you train specifically to enable you to get, you know, five matches in one day? So usually it's blocks. So you'll aim for, uh, if you look at a year, you'll have certain key events throughout the year and then your training will mirror that. As you get closer to a major event, you'll be more focused on the more dynamic, more um, lactate threshold, like really nitty gritty, horrible stuff right before. And, but towards the start of the block, three months towards the start, you're longer endurance, um sort of strength endurance in the gym um and you, you will probably compete through that period but you're not at your you know everything's sharpened as possible as it possibly can be and you'll gradually work through through that periodized plan from like longer endurance all the way up to like really intense short bursts mm-hmm. um and through that there will be a lot of like i say a lot of work outside of the, of the dojo but then there will be quite a lot of work in the dojo but that's also got a mirror what you're doing outside so say if it's towards the start of the block you're doing a lot of um, longer sessions a lot of long runs um, a lot of long gym sessions you'll probably have a 
little bit less intense judo side of it. You'll probably work on more uh, technical pointers and new new things that you want to try and work on. Um, and then longer. So we we do something called randori, which is our sparring, and that would be sort of more playful, longer. Um, and you're just working on timing. Um, and then as you get right in front of a competition, it is hammer and tongs as, you know, competition pace, trying to win. Um, and there's no playing about, you know, and, and that, that, that whole thing is mirrored the whole way through. So right before an event, you're doing your heavyweights, your power work, your, you know, short sprints, really short, intense intervals um, when it comes to conditioning and, it's it's mirrored the whole way through that process yeah um it's interesting to hear you say about sort of running as well so um running is quite a tricky sport i find because obviously running is something i do a lot of and um it has a lot of its own negatives so you talk about like you know stress on the joints hips knees um the issues of sort of like muscle wastage and over muscle usage and so on so how how what, what sort of running are we talking about? We're we talking about like little light jogs or is that quite an important part of your training? Well, like it's, it's funny, like funny we talk about now I'm a little bit older. I don't actually run as much yeah. in my younger career. When I, you know, my body did whatever I wanted it to, and I didn't have any like um, lasting effects from injuries. Um, I would run a lot more now, like with um, my knees get a bit, sore from running and, and now i'll use the cardio machines a little bit more i use the rower a lot more i use the ski erg quite a bit um and running has taken a bit of a back step but for a, a long period of my career my, my coach absolutely loves running so he um he was getting getting us like on the track a lot getting us running up hills doing hill sprints and that sort of thing a lot um it's not necessarily one thing that um it's not like you have to run to be a good judo player. Mm. I do definitely think I've never felt fitter than when I've been running a lot. And I don't know what that is. You know, I just, I, I've, I've struggled to get as intense work on a rowing machine than doing interval sprints, but that could just be in my own head, you know, instead of working against the machine, you're pushing yourself around the track, but yeah. Yeah. That's just, that's me, you know, yeah, no, I think that makes sense. You're right. You got to adapt it to yourself, um, and that's definitely that's definitely correct. Um, so one one more thing before we get into your injury, and then we're going to sort of start to wrap things up a little bit. So I'm conscious you've got other things to do. Of course, you're a very busy athlete. Um, so if we if we look at those gym sessions, I'm sure you don't go in there like most of us do and just pick up a couple of dumbbells and do some curls or whatever. What, what are your three kind of main, just, just give me three probably the, the biggest exercises you do that benefit your judo career. Are you like a power lifter? Are you like Olympic lifting? Is it more a sport specific training? What sort of stuff do you do? Yeah. So my, my all of my SSC work is um, my SSC coach plans alongside with my, my judo coach, but um, I'd say my favorites, um, would be trap bar deadlift, um, bench press, and then a nice heavy chin up. Uh, so with being a judo athlete, I, I've tried Olympic lifting. I've I've tried a number of different um, training methods, but 
ultimately like I'm built to be a judo player. That means that like my shoulders aren't particularly flexible. My forearms are terribly inflexible. So like putting a, a bar in front of me to do a front squat, like a lip or like do a proper clean. You know, I, I can't do it. And so that's, you know, that means that I can't do certain lifts particularly well, but yeah. that just means that you just change and adapt to that. Um, and ultimately the effort it would take to get me to sit down perfectly in a lovely front squat, like an Olympic lifter is not really going to really be worth the, the effort all the time. Um, not when you can, can change it over to other things, which, which might be, you know, to do the same thing. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That, well, that makes a lot of sense. Um, yeah. I, I, I do quite like my Olympic lifts. I like my power lifts as well. Um, I find I just get bored. Love to do them. Yeah. Yeah. I'd love to be able to do a proper clean, proper snatch. And I, I have tried a lot to do them, but it's that risk reward basis and like how much time have you got in a day to spend on the mobility elements of it? Um, and is that going to transfer in a big enough way to, to uh, warrant you doing it? Um, so, and a lot of the time it's not. So, yeah. yeah, no, you're right. You're right. It's got to be specific to you. And it's got to be what suits you. I think mm. one thing people probably quite surprised at who perhaps haven't been in that environment before is that I was at Bath, you know, I've trained with some top athletes. I've also, I've seen loads of top tennis players and rugby players, swimmers, all these sort of sports people training in the gym. And the one thing that most of them share as quite a common thing, actually, probably is the Olympic lifts, which is quite interesting. So Mm. so many of these athletes now what sport they do they tend to go for those fundamental um sort of compound lifts more dynamic which may mm. include those power lifts like you said like your your chest press and your deadlifts might be your cleaning jerk might be your snatch might be your front squats or whatever whatever it is but you don't see too many of these top athletes doing like um just like, like i don't know, like a simple shoulder press or like the back deck. <laughs> yeah, all those sort of quite individual muscle groups. A lot of them doing those big compound lifts seems to be the common thread between mm. set, between tennis and swimming and all these sports. The common thread really is those big compound dynamic movements, which probably lend themselves maybe not to judo because judo is quite a small sort of sport where you're not so much focused on like perhaps that flexibility or range of motion. Well, you are you're saying that you are in many regards, but probably just like yeah. yes than you would be saying swimming or athletics well no i think i'd i'd slightly disagree on that i think with judo and i think what properly links a lot of those sports is you're using your body as a whole like yeah. so for me to throw somebody i'm using like my my hips my knees my ankles to, to lift which is what most people would be using say in, in a clean you know you, you lift it off the floor you you hit it off your off your your thighs you, know, you get the triple extension from hip, knee and ankle, then you catch it and you're using your upper body and your lower back to stabilise. And I think that's what a lot of people and why they will be using that as well, because as a, a tennis player, you know, they're pivoting. They're not just using their arm to hit the ball, are they? You know, they're using the whole body from their feet. It's going for their knees, their hips to, to get the ball as much welly as they can. Yeah. Um, so I think that's probably why. And ultimately we, I think most strength and conditioning coaches will want to try and build quite a balanced, a balanced body. So one for a, 
that it works better, but also then so you're less likely to get injuries and less likely to where you're more likely to prevent those injuries. So, and I think that's a constant through through all sports. You know, if you have a massive bulbous upper body and pins underneath it for legs, you know, that's that's not going to help many sports. I mean, unless you're an arm wrestler, but <laughs> <laughs> you know. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, no, you're definitely right there. Um, and I, I suppose, yeah, I think, you know, you said yourself, the Olympic lifts don't work well for you. But yeah, I suppose maybe if you're a young judo athlete coming up and you had that range of flexibility, you perhaps weren't quite as developed as you are now, mm. then maybe those Olympic lifts could be a good way to go for sure. Yeah, definitely. And there's, there's, there's plenty of people out there who will use them. And that's, like I say, I wish I could use them. Like I end up doing a lot of jumps, a lot of um other ways to replicate that in a way mm. and i know a lot of friends who've got that flexibility who you know they can do it but just for me i i don't so i so i can't do them unfortunately so um yeah story okay. of my life yeah. <laughs> yeah so obviously this podcast is hips and dips um it's based mm. around my own experience of injury and all my guests experience of injury and adversity so We've got to talk a little about your injury and you've mentioned it several times and I haven't yet bit on it. You dangled it out there as a talking <laughs> point and I've ignored it every time. I've batted it away, but we're finally going to come to it. So um, your injury in this Olympic cycle, of course, was your, your broken leg. So let's talk a little bit about what happened, the recovery process and where you are now. Yeah, so I was at an event in Tel Aviv, um, one of the last sort of qualifying events for this um, for the Olympic Games um, in February. And my first ma- first round match, I was fighting a guy from Serbia. Um, I felt like I said in the match, like um, trying to put pressure on him, and like, I was putting in some good attacks. And then he he attacked, and it was sort of like a just a strange situation. He did like a drop attack to try and like get underneath me. Um, and one of his legs accidentally sort of caught my heel and the other knee smashed into my shin and I um, unfortunately broke my tibia and fibula um, which obviously is not very ideal Um, and you know went to hospital in Israel I ended up uh, being able to get flown back to the UK and um, got my surgery um, in in, uh, the Cromwell in London they um, had a super patella uh, nail put in so they go in above your knee um, move your kneecap out of the way and then put um, down the shaft of the tibia. They bore all bore out all the way down the, the shaft of the uh, the tibia and then um, then screw the the nail in from your ankle and your knee. And because of that, you you know it's quite strange because technically you still got a broken leg, but because you have got the the metal bar going from your knee to your ankle, you're stable, so you can walk on crutches the next day. Um, and thus far, like we are um, 15 weeks post-surgery, like I'm now jumping single leg jumps and like triple hops and that sort of thing on my leg. So the rehab's been going pretty well. Um, and like I say, we're not too far out from the Olympic Games, but I'm back doing like judo to a good level um, and sparring quite, quite hard. So, yeah, I mean, in terms of injuries that look as bad as it did, I, the recovery has actually been all right you know I, I would recommend that it's been has had its difficulties but it's um yeah i mean there's there's worse ones out there 
Was um was that surgery something um you offered because of the nature of you being an athlete and needing to get back, or was that something which anyone would have had if they're amateur or or just not involved in sport at all? Yeah, I think that that's quite a, a common surgery. I mean, I, I was very lucky because I um to get it in the time frame that I did because of getting back and because of getting it done in Israel, um, flying home. So I, I effectively um flew home and there was an ambulance waiting for me at, at arrivals which is a bit of an odd odd, odd thing um stretcher <laughs> in there to pick me up and take me straight to hospital but um, yeah so sorry what was your question i haven't forgotten uh so have i what are we talking about um injury uh uh Yes, I was saying, is it a, a surgery that everyone would have had? Oh, right, yeah. Accelerated of because of your sports, sports. And- yeah, so it, it, it is like, um, it's quite a, a typical procedure, I believe, in the UK and in America. Other parts of the world, they don't do it. They let it heal on its own with plates and that sort of thing. But mm-hmm. when I was last um, last getting my leg uh, looked at by my surgeon, like he was saying how well mine had done and somebody else who he was dealing with had had a plate in um, and it hasn't healed so after five months he's still holding around the crutches where I'm jumping you know so yeah. he was five months in and I was at that point three months in and he's still holding around the crutches and I'm jumping and doing judo <laughs> you know yeah. so it's um, I mean I mean yeah now it sounds grim you know the injury itself is grim having a massive pole rammed into your leg sounds pretty grim as well mm. I mean it's grim all around but I mean, I'm glad to see you making some sort of some sort of recovery yeah. Um, yeah, and it's interesting yeah. to hear that idea. Yeah, so you you were back. I mean, how quickly were you back training until you could walk around almost straight away? But how quickly until you could do some sort of sport? Um, I was doing some very light gym work after about ten days to two weeks. So I was doing like ten minutes on the rower, like single leg rower, like so just my right leg and then my my left leg, which is a broken leg, on like a had like a, a wheel that I'd attached to my shoes so I could just like row and just see um see how my body reacted basically um and then gradually built that up to upper body weights and my uh, weights on my right leg and um yeah just gradually built it up from there um and then here we are sort of three and a half months down the line and um you know pretty much back in full training there's some things that it doesn't like so much but we've been pushing it really hard with my physio and in, in judo and it's it's reacting really well so far great i mean i mean this sounds like a really obvious question but what went through your mind the second that leg snapped apart from like <laughs> ow <laughs> it was just like it literally was just like oh no <laughs> like like genuinely like no expletives but just like i was just like oh no and then, like most people, like you know, did you think of like the Olympics? Did you think of? I was just like, my mind just immediately went to like self-preservation, just like, right, I need to get this sorted out. Like, my leg is quite obviously broken. Like it inside, like you could feel like the, the bones like sort of grinding on each other. So I was like, there's a big problem here. Where you know, things aren't things aren't good. And also, I'm abroad. I'm you know, so yeah. There's it, it wasn't it was just in self-preservation how we're going to get it sorted out and because I was in Israel um, and Israel's technically in lockdown um, 
don't ask me how they managed to put on a competition when Israel was on in lockdown. But um, yeah, so that we had chartered flights in and out. So that obviously added loads of difficulty and was one of the main reasons why I ended up like um, coming home straight away because I could have got the surgery in Israel. But yeah, we, <laughs> that would have meant missing those chartered flights. Don't know when I was going to be able to get home, being on my own, you know, just loads of added difficulties to it. So, yeah, just a uh, difficult time, mate. <laughs> yeah, and, and mentally, like, just purely from a mental point of view, how quickly did, you, did your attention turn to, like, the Olympics and potentially missing out on that? Um, was that a very real option at one point, that your Olympic dream could be finished? Yeah, definitely, mate. Like, it's like, like I say, we're still not out the woods, you know? Like... I still have to be past fit. I still have to be ready to go. Yeah. Um, hopefully that's not likely to happen. But um, straight away, the I, I was very lucky that the the doctor at the um, at the venue on the day was talking to me that you know three months down the line you're going to be back training, and I was like, oh, okay. You know, when your legs hanging off and you you're literally hanging off, and um, you're looking at it, you're like, okay you know, three months, you know, that's like, like, you know, I can deal with that. So yeah, that, that, that's one thing that really calms my nerves with it. And obviously the whole way through when you're hobbling around with crutches and you're everything hurts, it's painful most days. You do definitely think it's, you know, are we going to get back? Like if I do, what will I be able to do? But as time goes on, I've definitely become more and more confident in myself and that I will get back and that I will be able to perform, hopefully. Yeah, yeah, fantastic. And as for one one final question before we do start to wrap up, it has just come to my mind right now is, do you think that that recovery process would have been any different if you were still competing for GB? Like, Would, you, would they have had access to slightly different medical care or rehab or um physiotherapy or 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 is the the irish care being just as good as you could have hoped for yeah the irish care has been fantastic um anything that i've needed they've been great and i'm I'm sure um it would have been the same in gb i'm sure any any sort of um developed country would be able to offer a very similar service and a very good level of care um, or you'd hope so but all i can speak about is you know the support that I've had from Team Ireland that has been fantastic, and I think that's one of the well, that is the main reason why I'm able to hope to get back to the Olympic Games. Otherwise, you know, you wouldn't. Luke Shaw was a key example of somebody who did a tip fib break and he was out for a year, and like yeah. within three and a half months, I'm back doing judo to a decent level. So, and that's not to be like, you know, I'm amazing, but it's, it's just like it's it shows how long it can take so um, i think there's an element of luck there but also i've been very dedicated to it but also the more than anything the level of care has just been fantastic from the word go yeah well that's um that's fantastic fantastic to hear from ireland and uh and i'm really i'm really excited just chatting to you tonight i feel really excited about this olympic game suddenly like i've been uh, good. thinking about it for a while and obviously you know got the euros first and there's various other sporting things to watch but I always love the Olympics. I love the thing about it, and I'm really excited to see you competing on in in that um, in that dojo. as a word. I'm really excited <laughs> to see you competing. I want to see those those rounds. I want to see how you get on, and 
um of course as you mentioned as long as you qualify and the better pass fit and so on but yeah i think that's really exciting so i'm definitely looking forward to that right so to round up um it's a new thing we've done for the last couple of months really which is free life lessons from a judo athlete so three things from your life that you think my listeners want to learn uh nice okay so the first one is a phrase well, it's a phrase or a quote um but it's one that i always sort of revert back to and the the quote is uh the way you do anything is the way you do everything um and i think that doesn't mean that you just do everything to you know you're absolutely dead but it's you know taking being very honest with yourself having 100 percent accountability and ownership of yourself and what you're trying to do um knowing that whatever you do that reflects on you and 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 you as a person you know i I think everybody sees people who like to blame other things and and other people but a lot of the time i I think you can do things better or you can you know you could have done something better um so i like to think that everything is pretty much under my control and i can do things better um Obviously, like somebody jumping on your leg and breaking your leg, it's quite outside of your control. But most most things you can you can have a, like an element of control on. So um, that's the first one. Um, the way you do anything is the way you do everything. Um, the second one is quite important. Like never compare yourself to anybody else. Only compare yourself to who you've been before or what you've done before, because ultimately nobody else has had the same upbringing, the same circumstances as anybody else um and this one also ties in a little bit to um play the hand you dealt you know that's also one that i there's more than three that that, those two are sort of joined um (laughs) i i think it's so easy to compare yourself to somebody else and you know oh they have this and they have that and they have it doesn't matter like you've got the set of circumstances that you have and you've got to do the best with with that ultimately, you know, and comparing yourself to anybody else or wishing you had things different, you know, it doesn't doesn't help you. You know, you, yeah. you've got to do the best with what you've got, and that's that's what you've got to do. Um, and then finally, this might be a little bit of an odd one, but it's from an athlete's point of view, and I'm sure um, people can relate if they're not athletes or they, you know, from outside the sporting world, but. Your coach and those who actually want the best for you aren't always going to be your favourite person. They, they're ultimately there to get the best out of you. And a lot of the time, that doesn't mean being your best mate. That's being honest with you. But also from a judo point of view, like my coach is the person who, who um, who's the person who pushes me. So with judo and fight sports, that means make you, like saying, go with that person and then you might not want to train with that person and it's physical and it's difficult on an international training camp and it's for them their job a lot of time is to find your weakness and exploit that so it's no longer a weak weakness and me and my coach um Jürgen Klinger we've had some difficult times and times when we I was preparing for Rio and you know we're in Japan for three weeks or four weeks and I you know I was completely dead and tired and everything and he, he pushed me and pushed me and pushed me. But ultimately, I, I knew it was coming from a, a, a good place. But at that time, you don't necessarily see it. You think that he's been a, a dick or, you know, he's, 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 he's not being a, the nicest person to you. 
but ultimately yeah. that comes from them wanting to get the best out of you and you know it's very easy to see that somebody's just being an arsehole or they're being whatever but ultimately you've got to see it from their point of view and that they're they're trying to get the best from you and so and a lot of the time it's difficult to see that um so yeah, most of the time, the people who want the best for you aren't always going to be the, the nicest to you, you know. So they'd be my three. Yeah, I think that's a great lesson for life in general. I mean, you know, your your boss at work might not be the nicest person. Same way, your coach isn't the nicest person, and you just kind of have to appreciate that they want what's best for you and what's best for the team. Perhaps in this case, we're the best for the company, a, a company you know, exactly a company yeah. rather than a sports team. So. You know, I mean, that's a great lesson. It's a great way to finish as well. So um, I want to thank you for those lessons. I want to thank you for talking to me today. And I want to wish you all the best of luck for this run up to the Olympics. And hopefully best of luck when you get to the Olympics. And I'm sure we're going to talk some more in the future. Thank you very much, mate. It's uh, been my pleasure. And uh, hopefully we'll do this again sometime. Awesome stuff from the big man there. The more I reflect on it, the more that injury is grim. And in my head, that rod that was inserted was probably about four inches in diameter and about three foot long. I don't believe it actually was quite that graphic, but the reality to recover from that kind of injury in, in what, three months leading to Olympics is rather remarkable. I'm really looking forward to watching him compete and see how he gets on. Make sure you check out that social media, which is at Ben Fletcher Judo 92 and also at hips underscore and underscore dips with a Z on Instagram for more updates on Ben's progress in the build up to his second Olympic Games. In other news, a big shout out must go to another big dog, Fraser Clark, uh, star of episode 16 of the podcast, who is now officially qualified to box at the Tokyo Olympics. It was very emotional, actually. I saw on his Instagram that he returned to his home of Burton uh, following that qualifying tournament. And you can see the whole town just turned up uh, to congratulate him. There was banners, there was chants, hundreds of people lining the streets with uh, Olympic logos and Tokyo banners and so on. Um, and this uh, competed with uh, Beth, who ran amazingly last week. And once again, uh, tonight, actually, in the Diamond League, to really set up a quite an exciting uh, Olympics, I think, for my guests so far. And uh, Ben, if there's anything to go by, being a guest on this podcast can surely only lead to more success. Right, so that's Series 1 finished, book closed. But what happens next? Well, if you haven't heard, uh, there is an Olympics this summer. So when we return for Series 2, we're hoping to be able to bring you some content from inside the Olympic Village, talking to some current Olympians and catching up with those people like Beth, Fraser and Ben. Not only will we be finding out about the village, about how they're competing, but I think we're really excited just to have quite regular updates on the Olympics as a whole. If you've enjoyed this series, make sure you rate us five star, leave a review. And as always, I love when people slide into the DMs and offer me advice, criticism, positivity, whatever you want to provide, really. For the meantime, though, I hope you really enjoy this summer ahead of sports, whether that be test series in the cricket, a Lions tour, uh, the Olympics, the European Football Championships, and so on. Uh, but just remember, for now, please stay engaged, 
stay patient and as always most importantly stay safe Thank you.